of course, some important, uh, crucial questions that people ask in life, aren't there? Some sort of fundamental, critical questions that uh, people ask. I suppose that's the kind of obvious questions that people ask in life. Uh, questions like, uh, what's the meaning of life? Or, or questions like, uh, what are we all doing here? There's those sorts of questions. But there's also the more kind of personal questions that people ask as well. Are there not questions like, right, where do I want to be in five years' time? And uh, what do I want to be doing? And uh, wait a minute, who do I want to be with in five years' time? There's those sorts of questions as well. Well, friends, I think what we are confronted with this morning in God's Word is perhaps one of the most fundamental questions of them all. Would you agree with me? Now you see what I mean, don't you? We have here a man who comes to Jesus, falls on his knees before the Lord, and what does he ask? He asks the following question. Consider it. What must I do to inherit eternal life? Now are you with me? Are you with me? Is that not one of the most sort of elementary, one of the most basic, foundational, fundamental questions of them all? What must I do as a person, as a human, what must I do to inherit, more than this, to inherit eternal life? This is big. This is the biggest question of them all. Well, this morning, what we'll do in our time together, our short time together, is we'll consider how it is that our Lord Jesus answers this question. What does he do in response to this question? How does he answer a question like that? And to do this, what I think we're going to see, not two, not even three, not even four, but I think this morning what we'll see are five lessons that God has to teach us here about eternal life. Five lessons about eternal life. So, I would ask you to please ensure that you have God's Word open in front of you. Have you got it there? In Mark chapter 10? Let's pray before we look at this. Let's pray. Lord, we are wretched sinners in need of grace this morning. And so we pray to you as a church, as a group of your people... And we ask that you would teach us about eternal life. That you might show us, if we are Christians here, what it is that we have in Christ Jesus. But if we are unbelieving in this room, that you might lift up the veil. That you might show us here the risen, exalted Christ. We pray in his name. Amen. Okay, so five lessons about eternal life. The first is this. We surely see here, we learn here, that salvation is about more than mere sincerity. You got it? Salvation, we see here, is about more than mere sincerity. Now, about four or five years ago, I think it was, the Pope, uh, Pope Francis, he caused a bit of a stir. Uh, didn't he? The Pope, uh, about four or five years ago, he, uh, in a letter that he wrote to a prominent atheist, he seemed to suggest 
that salvation wasn't so much about Christianity as it was about somebody following their own conscience. Okay, didn't go down too well. He seemed to suggest, you see the idea? He seemed to suggest that salvation, eternal life, wasn't so much about Christ as it was about a person being really kind of sincere and earnest in their seeking after eternal things. And they're seeking, you know, being earnest in their searching after God. Now, of course, we could, we could laugh. Now this, we are not Catholics in here. Uh, we could scoff at this. But let's not, because wait a minute here. I mean, is that not how so many people in this city think about salvation and about eternal life? Isn't that right? And there's so many people you work with, people in our communities, think like this. They think, well, all religions have common ground. Isn't that what people think? They think, well, you know, if there is a God at all, he's not going to be concerned with one exclusive way to him. No, don't be silly. You know, if there's a God at all, he's more concerned that people are earnest and, and sincere in seeking after him. Well, listen to me. What I think we're shown in Mark chapter 10 is what a complete and utter fallacy that that is. Because I want you to think about this man in Mark chapter 10. Now, what, what have we already said? We've said he is sincere enough to come to Jesus and ask a question about eternal life. You're getting the idea, he's sincere. But I want you to notice the manner in which he asks Jesus. Would you look at it with me? It's verse 17. How does he ask Jesus? What does he do? Do you see what he does? He runs to Jesus. Doesn't he? Runs to Jesus. What does he do next? He falls on his knees before him. Are you with me? You get in the sense here of a, 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 an urgency. Aren't you? There's a haste about this. And then notice even the way that he addresses the Lord. What does he see? Can I tell you that he uses what is an unusually kind of respectful term? There's an unusual term to come up to somebody and say, good teacher. Are you seeing the portrait before you seeing the picture? What is this man? He's a man of anything. He's earnest, isn't he? To run, to fall, to ask, to speak like this. This is a man who is ardently seeking God, seeking answers, and yet, how does it end? The man leaves the scene, and he leaves sad, and he leaves in darkness, and he leaves without eternal life. Do you see the point? Surely we see here that salvation must be about more than sincerity. It has to be. Look at the man. It must be about more than sincerity. Friends, regardless of how determined you are to get eternal life, regardless of how uh, earnest you are before God, it's not enough. It's not enough. Unless you are united to Christ Jesus by faith, you will never have everlasting life. It's not sincerity you need, not just sincerity. What do you need? You need the saving work of the Lord Jesus, the Son of God. Salvation is about more than mere sincerity. Lesson number two. We see here that salvation is about God's standard. And it's not about 
our own standard. It's about God's standard, and it is not about our own. Um, last summer, uh, I remember vividly having an argument about uh, with my son. <laughs> we were talking about this earlier this morning. Um, last summer, my son Colin had just learnt to swim. Okay, what that really meant was he could doggy paddle last summer about five meters before having to put his feet uh, down on the bottom of the pool. And the problem started when we got to the beach. (laughs) Uh, Because Colin couldn't understand why it was that I wasn't allowing him (laughs) to go right out into the deep water. He couldn't understand why I wasn't allowing him to go right out there into the ocean. Now you see the issue, you see what was, you know, the issue here in his mind, his eyes. I can swim that. Why not let me? And my mind, no, he couldn't. Now, do you see what's happening? Now follow me here. In a situation like that, Colin was meeting the bar that he had set. You see it? He was meeting his standard, and he was not meeting the standard that counts in a situation like meeting his own standard, not meeting the standard that counts. And that is exactly what we're dealing with in Mark chapter 10. Because let me suggest this. See this man, this rich young man that you've got in front of you here. He comes to Jesus, and let me suggest to you that he is confused about eternal life. Why? He's confused about how eternal life works because he views himself as being good enough for salvation. And he's looking around at the people around about him and his life, and he's seeing what they're like, and then he's looking at himself, and he's thinking of himself, well, wait a minute, I don't get this eternal Why have I not got eternal life? Because I am deserving of eternal life. Now, do you see where we get that in the text or not? You've got the scene. You're imagining the scene. The man runs up to Jesus, falls, asks Jesus this question about eternal life. Now, what does Jesus say to him? Do you notice? What he does is he says, what do you do to inherit eternal life? He directs them straight away to the commandments. Do not kill. Do not steal. So forth, right? Now, here's the key. What does the man say in response? Have a look at it in verse 20. What does the man say in response? He says, well, all these commandments, look at it. All these I have kept since I was a boy. (laughs) Do you see what he's saying in effect to Jesus? He's saying, well, actually, Jesus, to be honest with you, I kind of think I'm good enough. You know, like what do I do to inherit eternal life? Because, see these commandments, I've nailed them. Like I really am a righteous guy, Jesus. How do I inherit eternal life? Because I am good enough. Now, Again, you and I could look at this and sort of laugh at this guy and think, oh, what a fool he is. But again, I say to you, is this not how the people of London think? Because I'm telling you this, see if my friends, my unbelieving friends, if they were in this room just now, we got them up here at the front, and if we as a congregation were to ask them whether they think they're going to go to heaven when they die... Do you know, to a man, to a person, every single one of my friends, unbelieving as they are, they would all go, well, yes, of course, we're going to go to heaven when we die. Why? Because, well, we're good enough. Like, we haven't killed anybody. 
We haven't attacked anybody. We haven't murdered anybody. Of course we're going to go to heaven when we do. Isn't that how people think? Isn't it? Now, here's the problem. You and I are supposed to be reaching people like that with the good news of the gospel. So how are we going to break that down? What do we do when that is a person's attitude? Let me tell you this. What we need to do as a church is adopt the evangelistic strategy that we see here from the Lord Jesus Christ. Because what does Jesus say to the man? This guy's saying, I'm good enough. Like, what do I do in eternal life? Because I'm good enough. What does Jesus say in verse 18? He says to the man, no one is good except God alone. Do you see what he's doing? He's taking this man and he's raising his perspective from himself to God. Do you see it? He's raising, lifting this man's perspective from his own ideas about righteousness, lifting up that perspective to an almighty, holy, just God and to the goodness he requires. So I'll ask you this. Somebody tomorrow comes to you and asks you to explain your faith. What are you going to do? Where are you going to start? You're going to start with the church. Are you going to start by instantly saying, you need to repent? Where are you going to start? What I think we see here is that very often, certainly in a city like this, we need to start with God. We need to tell people, we need to show people that they have fallen, that we have fallen short of God's standard We need to explain that all have fallen short of the glory of Almighty God. So we see here that salvation is about meeting whose standard? Our our idea of goodness and holiness? No, about meeting God's standard and not our own. Okay, third lesson we see here is that salvation involves a nasty word. Salvation involves submission to the Lordship of Christ. I wonder uh, for yourself just now, I wonder if you see what it is that God is doing in Mark chapter 10 in the story of the rich man. Would you not agree with me that what he is doing is he correcting a number of misconceptions about Christian faith. Doing a lot of correcting work is God here, is he not? You know, people say, oh, it's just sincerity that counts. And God says here, no it ain't. And people say, oh, it's just about whether we think we're good and what humanity thinks about goodness. And God says here, no, it ain't. Well, what, what happens as we move on in the story is that again God corrects another misconception that we have about salvation, eternal life, and Christian faith. But with this one, what I want to do is really actually turn it over to you. So you're going to have to be awake for a start, and you have to be alert. Alright? So, uh, can I ask you this? How is it that the people in your life just now, how do they think that heaven and salvation is found? 
Not just generally, I mean the people in your life. Like take that, uh, the unbelieving person that you work with alongside, okay? See that person and the person, the unbelieving person that you spend all the time with. Or maybe even the person of, the unbelieving person of a different faith or the person on the street. Can you picture the person, you know? How would they see uh, salvation or heaven is found? Hmm? Well, is it not like this? Would they not say that salvation must be, if God exists, salvation must be about the way that we behave? Is that not what people think, the people in your life? It's got to be. Isn't that what people think? You know, like, you know, heaven is found, if there is a God, heaven is found by us, by people doing the right sort of things, isn't it? By doing the right sort of charitable acts, or maybe even attending religious services. It's about behavior, it's about doing the right thing. Uh, don't the people in your life think like that? Well, isn't it interesting how this rich young man in Mark chapter 10 kind of mirrors what is a 21st century popular view of heaven? Because I'm going to ask you to do something. I'm going to ask you to look at the exact words of the question he asks. So you have to go back to verse 17, but look at the exact question he asks. I wonder if you've noticed what he asks before. Good teacher... What must I, what's the next word? Good teacher, what must I, what must they do? Did you see what he's thinking about? I mean, isn't it the way that everyone thinks about salvation here, isn't it? This man is thinking about behavior. He's thinking about eternal life in terms of what this guy does. Now, (laughs) if you're a Christian in here, what might you expect Jesus to say to the man at this point? You might expect him to say, oh, get this wrong about what you do. It's about believing in me. You expect that? Wouldn't you expect Jesus to say that? It's not about behavior, salvation, eternal life. It's about belief. You'd expect that. So isn't, isn't it interesting to see that that is not what Jesus does at all? Isn't it interesting to note that what Jesus does tell this man to go away and do something? You see what it is? He's told... To sell everything that he owns. Sell it all. Give it all to the poor. Then come back and see me. Now, does that mean that we've got to sell our cars and sell our houses and sell our clothes to inherit eternal life? Thankfully, it does not mean that. But I ask you, do you see what your Savior is doing in that expression? Do you? By telling this man to sell everything, is he not revealing to this man that this was a man who was unwilling to meet the cost of discipleship? You see what it is? This is a great revelation to this man. Sell all your possessions so this man will see that he was not willing to give all and follow Christ. And I think it's so sad because I think we would have loved this guy. I mean, did you notice that? Did you notice that that Jesus looked at this man and he loved him? Like, I think this guy was a great guy. He's a young guy. He's a nice guy. He's a morally upright bloke. And, you know, he's he's, he's sincere as well. He's not taking any nonsense. He's a likable chap. And yet, what do we have? What does Jesus show him? He shows him that here was a man who was not willing to abandon. Abandon all things and entrust himself 
to the Lordship of the Son of God. And I, I, I want to make it personal. Excuse me for making it personal for just a moment. I, I, I don't know a lot of you in here. It's half term. Our congregation goes and many visitors come in here. And I don't know where you are at with this sort of stuff that we're dealing with this morning. But I do wonder if there are people in here who are at the stage of asking the same question as this man. Are there? Are there people in here who are so utterly, oh, dissatisfied with life that they are beginning to look to God and, and, and cry out, what do I do, God, to inherit eternal life? If that is you, do you see what the answer is? See, the answer to it all, like it isn't actions, it isn't behavior, it's not even about you being in this church today. That's not, that's not pleasing God. You see what it's about? It's about Jesus. It is about you today even yielding yourself and everything over to the Lord Jesus Christ. And it's that that this man, as lovable as he was, is that that he was not willing to do. But that's it. That's it all. That's the key to everlasting life. It's about you, even this morning, bowing. Bowing to the Lordship, to the sovereignty, to the authority, to the kinship of the Lord Jesus Christ. So, you're with me so far. We're looking at lessons about salvation. We've seen lastly that the that, that salvation involves submission to the Lordship eh, of Christ. A fourth lesson we see here. Yeah, it's a difficult one, this, friends. It is that salvation and riches do not mix. Salvation and riches do not mix. A couple of weeks ago, uh, Winona Ryder uh, hit the headlines. Winona Ryder, the actress. I don't know if you saw the footage of Winona Ryder recently or not. It was hilarious. Uh, the cast of the hit TV show, Stranger Things. The whole cast were up uh, receiving an award up on stage. And... Uh, when Rona Ryder, the actress, was standing next to the man who was making the acceptance speech. So he's, you can imagine it, here's the, you know, he's up there making the speech. When Rona Ryder, the actress, is, she's, she's standing next to him. Throughout this speech, throughout the entirety of the speech, Winona Ryder proceeds to make about 15 sort of grand overblown uh, facial expressions, you know, from, you know, confusion uh, to, to, to shock. Uh, and of course the internet has gone crazy for, for Winona Ryder's facial expressions ever since. Now that is how I genuinely like to picture what happens next in this story in Mark. Because you're with me so far, you see what's happening. At this point the man has walked off. Now Jesus turns round. And what I like to think of it surely is that he sees 12 disciples with shock. It's upon their faces. Now, can you see why they're shocked? You can see why they're shocked, can't you? Think about it. This is a rich man. This is a young guy who's come to them 
and he's wanting to sort of join their cause, if you if you like. And what does Jesus do? He's a rich guy, young guy. What does Jesus do? It sends him away. And that's shocking itself. But what is surely even more surprising is what the Lord goes on to say as he turns around to the disciples. Now, I will just read it to you. Now, think about it. Wrestle with what he has to say, because it's not easy. He looks at the disciples and he says, How hard it is for the rich to enter the kingdom of God. Now, you at least, I hope, see why it's shocking to those 12 disciples. Do you? Like in the first century world, I mean, the rich, a man alive, the rich were uh, quite simply revered. You know, despite the fact that in the Old Testament, God is portrayed as the protector of the poor. The Jews at the time in the first century, oh, they looked at riches and they thought, well, wait a minute, riches, oh, riches are always a sign of God's blessing. Riches always a sign of God's favor. And what was this? The twelve were hearing? It is hard, says Jesus, for the rich to be saved. Hard for rich people to be saved. Now let's be, as a congregation just now, absolutely crystal clear about what Jesus means here. Do you see what he is meaning? How is it that the book of Proverbs puts it? He who puts his trust in riches will fall. And isn't that what Jesus is saying in this portion of scripture? He's saying quite simply, that wealth is an obstacle to salvation. Isn't that something? It is a barrier to people being saved. And why? Because it gives people false hope. Isn't that true? I mean, if we have riches, we cease to see ourselves as the child in the previous section. Do you remember it? Helpless, like that little baby in need of God. If we have riches, no, we don't see ourselves like that. We see ourselves as having security. We are wealthy. We are affluent. We can look after ourselves. My friends, most of all this morning, I want, I want to speak to you and I want to encourage you to see how that should impact your witness to London. Because we live in the most affluent of cities, do we not? And I want to say something quite controversial to you. And I want you to listen to what I'm about to say. Assess whether it's true. But in this affluent city, every single person that you are trying to reach with the gospel, those people in your families, those people in your friend group, every single one of them, they fall into this category of being rich. Do you agree with me? If you think about it from a point of view of a Jew in the first century world in the Middle East looking on at these people, would they not regard each and every one of them as being rich? And what is Christ saying about them? It is hard for these people to be saved. 
I wonder, in light of this, do you see what it is that you and I must give ourselves to? Do you see? We must surely give ourselves to prayer. Because think about what we're seeing here. That those people we are trying to reach today with the gospel are amongst the hardest people to reach and win for Christ on this whole earth. The people this congregation are trying to reach, given the affluence of London, they are the hardest people on this earth to reach. Surely we must pray. Surely we as a congregation must be on our knees pleading God to work. Why? Because verse 27 is true that with man the salvation of the rich is impossible, but not with God. And then we'll see, lastly, a fifth and last lesson we're taught by God here. And it is that salvation, friends, brings blessing in this life and the next. Salvation brings blessing in this life and the next. Now, when I was growing up in Scotland, uh, every year, without fail, one particular comedy sketch show was aired on the TV. Okay, And the, the comedy sketch show was aired... At the same time on New Year's Eve every year for, I don't know, 15, 20 years. The sketch show revolved around one made-up comedy character who was supposed to be a Presbyterian Scottish reformed minister. And uh, the character... His name was Reverend I M Jolly. Reverend I M Jolly. So maybe you get a sense of what kind of <laughs> sketch show this was. It was poking fun <laughs> at the fact that Presbyterian ministers in Scotland in the seventies and eighties uh, they were viewed as being the ultimate party poopers. You know, uh, these guys are us. Uh, we were supposed to be, you know, the ultimate, uh, ultimate sort of miserable doer, uh, the most doer man alive, Reverend I am Jolly. Now, here's the thing. Is that what we should be like as Christians in London? I mean, you, you, you see why I ask. I mean, again in Mark's Gospel, we're getting to a point where we're reminded of the cost of following Jesus, the great cost of discipleship. So should we be like that? Should we be a miserable lot of Christians going out into the centre of London? Is that us? Well, Jesus answers the question here. And what he does at the end is marvellous, because what I think he does here is he assures you, he promises you blessing. Now, yes, we must admit he promises us blessing that is merged with persecution. You noticed that, did you? He gives a list of blessings that in the end he promises us that if we follow him, there will be troubled times. But I want you to see that is not his focus here. I want you to see that Jesus here in these verses is concerned to show you, remind you of the blessings that you have in him. So as we end, I long and I pray that this would impact your life if you're a Christian. 
Especially if you're a Christian who's come here this morning discouraged, down, depressed. Would you consider for a moment, first of all, the blessings that you have this morning and here through the work of Christ Jesus? I mean, think about it. What is yours? At this moment, as you sit in this church, you have peace in your relationship with Almighty God. Is that not the most beautiful thing to be reminded about? You have, wait for it, you have a perfect forgiveness for your sin. Those sins you have committed in the past, gone. Those those committed this week, today, those committed in the coming days, your sin forgiven in Christ Jesus. You also have the blessings of fellowship with the family, the community of faith. Aren't these wonderful things? Life-changing things, aren't they? But then, brothers and sisters, consider the blessings that will come to you in the life ahead. Do you see what I mean by that? Understand that for every hardship that you go through in the name of Jesus Christ, you will receive a hundredfold the blessing and the benevolence of God in the life to come. Isn't that beautiful? You see what is awaiting you on the other shore, do you? It is your father's house. It is stands, it is built, it awaits you. What is it like? Man, it is a place where sorrow is silent. And it is a place where pain is barred from entry. It is a place where death is denied access and it's a place where where love divine love only increases and it's a place where praises revolve forevermore it is a place where you and I will dwell with live with our saviour forevermore do you see what Christ is saying at the end here he's saying discipleship yes it's about cost there's a cost but nothing compared With the blessings, the treasures, the riches of God that you will receive. And how? Oh, because at the beginning of this section, the man runs and falls before Jesus. And we are told, as Jesus was on his way somewhere, where was he going? All of it is ours. Because in those moments, he was bound for Jerusalem. He was bound for the cross. He was bound to atone for our sin. Friends, would you heed this warning as we go out of this building this morning? Do not be like this rich young man of Mark chapter 10. He came to Jesus. He came interested in the gospel, but he left, listen to me, he left from the viewpoint of God never to be heard of again. Do not be like that. This morning, if you see anything, see that you fall short of the standard of righteousness that God demands for salvation. See, if anything, that you today must submit yourself in everything to Christ.
Would you come, Jesus? Even today, even in this place, come to Christ Jesus. What will you receive if you do that? You will receive blessing. But you will receive the blessing of eternal, everlasting life. What must I do to inherit eternal life? You must bow and bow and bow to Jesus. Let's pray.